2: Amazing, colossal podcast with my co host Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is back for his third go round in the hot seat. He's a screenwriter, producer, humorist, occasional actor, children's book author, Thurber Award winning novelist, Tony Award winning playwright and Emmy Award winning TV writer. He's also been awarded the Ian McClellan Hunter Award Lifetime Achievement by the Writers <laughs> Guild of America. And boy, don't you love Ian McClellan in those Order of the Rings pictures. (laughs) He wrote the screenplays for movies like Dragnet, The Story of Us, and North.
1: Hey! (laughs) Hey, that's a low blow. Yeah, did I
2: mention North? No! (laughs) North, a movie that may have played a role in the tragic demise of critic Roger Ebert.
1: (laughs) Oh, I did that to him. Yes.
2: (laughs) He collaborated with Billy Crystal and Martin Short on their one-person shows, 700 Sundays and Fame Becomes Me. He also served as a writer and producer on two of the most beloved TV series of the last 30 years. Curb Your Enthusiasm, and It's Gary's shandling Show, a series he also co-created. That's right. He was also one of the staff writers of the original Saturday Night Live, contributing unforgettable sketches like John Belushi's samurai skits, weekend update segments featuring iconic characters Emily Latella and Roseanne Dana. He's also one of the executive producers of the terrific documentary Love, Gilda, about the work of his late friend, the great Gilda Radner, and his brand new memoir is called Black Lives. My life helping funny people be funnier, please welcome back to the podcast one of the world's most amusing humans and a man <laughs> flesh by both Milton Berle <laughs> and Farrah Fawcett and the tallest Jew in America, <laughs> not named Jeff Goldblum.
1: <laughs> Our old
2: pal, and the creator of North. Hey! <laughs> Alan Schleifel.
1: Well, I I don't even know how to thank you for that introduction. <laughs> Welcome back, Alan. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This is great. You know something? I forgot that I wrote North. <laughs> <laughs> It was so much fun to have my memory refreshed.
2: I'll remind you every five seconds. Okay, no, that's <laughs> yeah. fine. And
1: um, you know something? When I was writing this book, when I got up to the section about North, it was, um, I put in an excerpt from Roger Ebert's review. In it. Okay, just to show you. Okay, I hated this movie. Hated, hated, hated. Hated, hated, hated this movie. (laughs) Hated it. Hated (laughs) every simpering, stupid, vacant, audience-insulted moment of it. Hated the sensibility that thought anyone would like it. Hated the implied insult to the audience by its belief that anyone would actually be entertained by it. Now. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bad review. uh, Now, on the surface, this may seem like an unfavorable review. But if you keep reading and I think he sort of liked it. <laughs> you, have, you have no idea what that was like. It was the first... Well, actually, the first movie I had uh, my name on uh, was uh, Dragnet, but uh, this was made from my book, and I co-wrote the screenplay, but it was me up front, and this was the leading critic in the country at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I had... I had flown my parents out to L.A. There were two Les Jews in Boca that night, (laughs) so they can come out to the premiere. We go, it's a big Hollywood premiere, and I had a feeling that the audience was not going to be into it, because when the lights came up, and I looked around, the theater was empty. Everybody had left, (laughs) okay? (laughs) And... Uh, in the limo on the way back to my house, my mom was crying. <laughs> and when, when this review came out, my wife, Robin, uh, she would come back from the supermarket that we had been going through for years and say she was accosted by other housewives who were assaulting her about this movie and our son Adam, who was I think in like sixth grade at the time, or eighth, seventh grade, came back from school and asked if we can change our last name to Sorkin. <laughs> so it was, it, it, it was really what what the kids say a low point. <laughs> okay, you, you you carried that thing around in, uh, on your person for years. I have, have it Alan. in my wallet. The wallet's in the other room, but if you we still, go in there, yes, you still the have wallet it. is there, and that's you you ran into Ebert,
0: which I didn't know until I read the new book. You ran into Ebert years later in a restaurant.
1: I had always wondered what it would be like if I ran into Roger Ebert. Like, you know, the time that this review came out, like I said, he was the number one critic and it was devastating and, uh, uh, and it was embarrassing. And I let him have the power of, you know, destroying me. I I lost my confidence and all of that stuff. I eventually rebounded. It it only took like seven, eight years to rebound. So I don't think that's called a rebound. (laughs) Okay. And I had written a book uh, and I was on book tour and I was in Chicago and I was taken out to lunch. I was in a restaurant. And I look over, about two, three tables over, there is Roger Ebert. He lived in Chicago, so I think he wrote for the Sun-Times, one of those yeah. newspapers Yeah, there. I believe so. And he was wearing a sweater, I remember, it had all the autumn colors on it, burnt orange and gold and puke green. It was this <laughs> large <laughs> thing. And at one point he got up and he went to the men's room, and I'm going... I excused myself from the table, and I started following him. And I'm saying to myself, as I'm going towards the men's room, as if I'm not attached to my body, I'm I'm saying to myself, I wonder what Alan's going to do to Roger Ebert, okay? (laughs) So I go to the men's room, and now we're at the sink, and we're both, you know, the mirror is on the wall in front of us. So while we're washing our hands, I say, Roger, and he looked up, and he's trying to place me. I go, Alan's white belt. Blood yeah. drained from his face. Okay. And he turned really pale. And I said, Roger, I just have to tell you that I hate, 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 <laughs> hate, 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 hate that sweater you're wearing. Okay. <laughs> It was a horrible sweater, and he looked at me, and he started laughing, I started laughing, and that was the end of The Great Feud. Yeah. But he did all nice those ending. hates, I believe he used as a uh, the title for one of his collections.
0: He did. Yeah. He absolutely did. You know, we were talking about the movie last night over email, which I you know, I watched again, and I hadn't seen it in years. And I was reading that interview with Vanity Fair that you gave with our, our pal Donald Liebenson, and you said you hadn't seen it, what, in seven, eight years yourself? Yeah. You know, it's 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 a tr- it was meant as a trifle. I mean, it was a am, am I right? A small a small kids movie, a little. It was a, a
1: small kids a fa- movie, an affectionate
0: little uh, a silly story based on your novella.
1: It was so well intended. <laughs> 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 you know, if I put this little thing. You know, a kid doesn't feel appreciated by his parents. He declares himself a free agent goes all over the world offering his services as a devoted son to the highest bidding sets of moms and dads. And after going all around the world to France and Iceland and Italy, he realizes that his own parents are the best parents for him. I meant well. (laughs) That's a very sweet notion. This was treated like I committed a war crime. Okay. (laughs) You know. It's got some very good things in it. It had a couple of good things. It, Unfortunately, in a movie, they want more than a couple. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a beautiful movie to look at, I have to say. Looking at the production design.
1: Oh, God. It was and, $50 and million, the, and it looked gorgeous. And Mark Shaman and did a Mark Shaman did a great job. Yeah. And is it.
2: Tell us the cast. Well,
1: Bruce Willis, uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus, Jason Alexander,
0: Kathy Bates.
1: Kathy Bates, Dan Aykroyd, uh, Reba McIntyre, uh, John Ritter was in it, Faith John Lovitz was in it. And there was, uh, John Lovitz was in it. And for you trivia buffs out there, <laughs> 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 it was the first movie appearance by an eight-year-old Actress named Scarlett Johansson. Oh yeah, she's wow. one of, she's yeah. River and
0: Faith Ford's daughter. There you go. And yeah.
1: was Alan Arkin? Yeah, Alan Arkin, Arkin was a
0: judge. Yeah. He's this good.
1: This was a cast from heaven.
0: Yeah, it's a great cast. Yeah, I and, just you know don't... Belzer's funny in uh, his little moment. Yeah, yeah. Lovitz is funny. A- Acroyd is good. The the uh, the musical number with Acroyd and Reba McIntyre is fun. It's a beautiful movie to look at. It's got a
1: lot going for it. Yeah, it's good to look at. Unfortunately, you also had to listen to it. (laughs) And and that's where people had a problem.
2: (laughs) I forget who said this, but somebody once said, I don't read my bad quote. I don't read my bad reviews because I know some good friend will read them to me. <laughs> That's exactly and right. And you,
1: you experienced that after North. Oh, you know what it was? It was my dad calling me up and <laughs> saying, don't read Time Magazine, page 67. <laughs> column three right under the subaru ad i'm going
0: i thought it was sweet too that robin tried to help by reading you bad reviews of classic
1: films well my wife is the greatest robin (laughs) um she tried to help me get out of the doldrums yeah and she looked up and found bad reviews for things like the wizard of oz and godfather 2 you know and um she meant well. <laughs> <laughs> we have to say, Gilbert, that Abe Vigoda
0: was in it, too. Oh, that's right. Great. He's the Eskimo granddad that's sent out on the ice floe. That's ex- and, and it was
1: Belza who was the, Belzer uh, the was orisman, great. right? There's a lot of laughs and, in it. And didn't a rabbi call you? Oh, this was, no. I ran into him at a supermarket, <laughs> okay, and he cornered me and an aisle filled with trafe, okay? All sorts of pigs' knuckles and things like that. I knew I was in trouble. And um, he just basically, not only offered his condolences, he was willing to sit shiver. <laughs> 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 and and he, he, ta- he quoted, because he's a rabbi and he's knowledgeable, He quoted, and I swear to you, this is the truth. He quoted one of the reviews that Hitler got for Mein Kampf. (laughs) 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 Apparently, Hitler did better than I did. (laughs) What was the OJ line you did on Letterman? about? Oh, yeah, when I was on, uh, I think it was my first appearance um, on Letterman. And David uh, asked me um, uh, about North, and I told him, I said, you know, um, it didn't do that well uh, at the box office. As a matter of fact, the night of the uh, the killings, uh, O.J. <laughs> was actually in a theater watching North, but there was nobody else in there to corroborate his story. <laughs>
0: hilarious and you you have to tell this again too which is the story about uh adam your son adam and
1: mike ovitz's kid well this we were living in la and our son went to a school we spent through the nose for called crossroads it's a, a private school there and there's a lot of show business um you know the sons and daughters of show business folks there and um we played a game when the kids came home from school at night, it wasn't a game, but it was a ritual we had at the dinner table. We called it high-low. And everybody had to tell their high for the day and had to tell their low for the day. And this was a way of keeping in touch. And if there was a low, we helped them, you know, if a kid was giving somebody a hard time. And it was nice. It was a great bonding thing that we used to do when the kids were young. And um, Adam, when it was his turn to go, uh, he his low was a run-in that he had with Mike Ovitz's son. Now, Mike Ovitz ran Hollywood (laughs) at the time. He was the big guy at CAA. He was the most powerful man in town. And his son, Chris, uh, you know, he got into a a bit of a shouting match with with our son, Adam, you know, in in the schoolyard. And most kids went... They you know when they they sort of like put each other down, you know, you're fat, no, you're fat, you're a bad ball player, you're a bad ball player. And it started like that. And then Ovids got in the last shot by saying, Yeah, well, your <laughs> your father wrote North, and that's <laughs> how you're gonna <laughs> do 10 million at the box office. <laughs> <laughs> I love so hearing Hollywood it. kid, okay. And I said to Adam, I said, Well, how did you answer? He said, Well, I said, Well, at least people like my father. And I said, That's your high for the day. <laughs> okay. So oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Good kid.
0: Gilbert, and, we, we said it yeah. on the on the episode with Jeffrey last week with Jeffrey Tambor, but tell it, it's it bears repeating. Tell Alan your worst review.
2: Oh, uh, I my worst review was Gilbert Gottfried is the worst thing to happen to movies since the snuff film.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, you know, I, I was, I was, Dennis Miller, I was on his show, uh, I guess it was last week. And he was talking about, um, we were talking about Tom Shales, who was a legendary, Oh, yeah. Wonderful oh sure, Yeah, critic. sure from the Washington, and he was the guy, you always wanted Tom to like you, okay, and um, Tom wrote a book about a, an oral history of Saturday Night Live, a terrific writer, James Andrew Miller, okay, they wrote it, and um, I said, Gee, you know, I had, you know, those books, I don't read, I just look at the, I look in the index for the pages that my name is on, I go to those pages and make sure I was behaving myself, and then I put the Book back on the shelf. So I asked Dennis, I said, you you know, how much time did you spend with him? Because I know I spent a lot of time giving them interviews. And he said, no, he didn't. He just couldn't sell himself out that way because when Dennis was doing weekend update, Tom said, Shale said something in a review about him that the highlight of every Weekend Update that Dennis does is when he turns the page to the next joke. <laughs> okay. No, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the essence of it. So, um, unreal. you know, boy.
2: And you said Gilda Radner said, call me Gilbert?
1: Well, yeah, what had happened was when Gilda started getting famous, You know, we all started the show, you know, with just a bunch of kids in the early and mid-20s, and we started putting on this show. And um, I remember there was one time that we went into um, Carnegie Hall. We went to see Billy Crystal was there with, um, I, I think, Melissa Manchester, okay? And as we're walking in, this is Carnegie Hall now, okay? People from the upper tiers was when they recognized Gilda, they started yelling down, hey, Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana, hey, Gilda, hey, Gilda. And they started saying, hey, I also have an eating problem. Hey, I also have trouble keeping a guy. And it spooked the hell out of her. It spooked her. And at the end of the evening, um, we were talking. We were sitting there. They emptied the place out, and um, she was down and I said what's the matter she says it just scares me that people who I don't know know these personal things about me and um she's as a sign of affection or a sign of our closeness she wanted me she said please don't call me Gilda anymore I said well isn't that your name and she said yeah but I I want our friendship to be special. I'd like you to call me something that nobody else does. And I said, what should that be? And then she said, Gilbert. And from there on, for the rest of her life, any note I sent her, any phone call, it was all Gilbert. That's and you sweet. thought it had something to do with you, didn't you?
2: I was hoping. You know, <laughs> right. All,
1: right, okay. All right, take two. Take two. We're in <laughs> Carnegie Hall. <laughs> and we're sitting afterwards. And so I, bell, I would really love it if you called me something that, um, oh, let's say that Gilbert Gottfried's parents call him. <laughs> okay, you can edit that in. Take the other yes. thing out. Okay. <laughs>
0: You were twenty four when that ha- when that all that happened, Alan. That's yeah, ama- I turned twenty five
1: in May twentieth yeah. uh, of nineteen seventy five. I got the job like either late April or early right. May. The right. first um, meeting was exactly June uh, July seventh, nineteen seventy five. So I had turned twenty five a couple of months before, but I was twenty four when I found that I had the job. And I remember I was with Richard Lewis when that phone call came. He and I were writing spec scripts together, and um, we both had the same manager, uh, a man named Dave Jonas. The
0: legendary Dave Jonas. Dave
1: Jonas. And uh, Gilbert, do you remember Jonas? Oh, yes. He, he was he was a sweet man. He was an older man even at that time. And, you know, uh, it's been said that Woody Allen based Broadway Danny Rose. Yes, that I've heard character that. character very much on Dave. Dave what, was a vision in polyester, and he had, uh, he had a toupee, But he didn't have enough glue (laughs) because (laughs) when the wind, you know, would spin it around and I'd stay with him on a street corner. And all of a sudden the part that was over here is now over here. And it was a whole to do, but he was my first manager. Yeah. Yeah. The legendary Dave Jonas.
2: You were saying that when you were writing bunny bunny, you were talking to a TV executive.
1: Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I had written Bunny Bunny, which was my tribute to Gilda. I wrote it to get over, you know, her death. I, uh, I relived the whole uh, relationship as I remembered it. You know, where did we meet? Oh, that first meeting. And it was she talked, I talked, she talked, so I talked. And it, I just chronicled everything as best my memory can serve me for 14 years of this relationship, ending with um, a eulogy that I gave at, at her memorial. And uh, the book did very, very well, and there were people who wanted to option it, and there was a meeting up at HBO, and there was some genius up there who said, <laughs> we love this book. We really want to do this movie, but does she have to die at the end? <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> I said, I said, I said, well, what did she have, like a bad cold? What are you talking about? Incredible. They were trying to like it, you know, the opportunity for a possible sequel. <laughs> it was insane.
0: You know, thinking about those days, Alan, the old SNL days that you, you bring to life in the book, I mean, it's kind of romantic. Even the, even you start struggling as a stand-up at Catch, you and Billy taking the Long Island Railroad back and forth into the city and r- running oh. running
1: jokes together and... Going, going Billy up and Morgan. I speak about it all the time. You know, yeah. we just did a mo- we did a movie together uh, that wrapped in um, November. We just got it all done and we locked the picture. And before this uh, coronavirus stuff happened, so you know, we were lucky that we have it. You know, there's some post production work that has to be done on it, like music and whatever. But the picture exists. Um, the fact that he and I wrote this movie and we brought it up a lot, and it's even in the forward to this book. Mm -hmm. And if you, any of you who, it's this book that um, (laughs) he, um, the fact that we had started 45, 47 years earlier, I lived with my parents uh, on Woodmere, Long Island. He was already married to Janice and they had a child, they had Lindsay, uh, Jenny, excuse me. And we became fast friends at, at Catch a Rising Star. He would pick me up every night at my parents' house in a little blue Volkswagen. We drive into the city, we do our respective, you know, sets, and then he would drive me home and we would listen to the tapes, you know, and critique each other, new jokes. What if you said it this way? Oh, I really like that piece. And the fact that so many years later, we're now doing this motion picture together uh, that stars him and Tiffany Haddish and Billy directed it. We wrote the script together. It's, inspired by a, uh, a magazine piece that I had. And it was just magical how it all, you know, and in between those two, we had done 700 Sundays, which uh, was a real highlight for me because here was a guy, Billy, who wanted to do a one-man Broadway show that was about his parents, about his extended family. And he trusted me with them. He trusted me to have the respect for them that he had. And it, and it brought back a thousand memories for me because, you know, two Jews from Long Island, it's not like that their relatives are like, you know, aliens. They're pretty much the same people. So it just got me in touch with my old relatives and we put some of the stuff in the mouths of Billy's relatives. But um, yeah, the whole relationship, the whole friendship is really magical and having those roots. And then uh, here we are, we just did this picture.
0: And Tiffany Haddish wasn't even born when you guys...
1: When we met, did, <laughs> yeah. you, did, 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 what, you know, she, 30 or something There's, yeah, yeah, she's in late 30s, maybe yeah. 40. No, she yeah. was not born. No, it was no. so many people not born. We
0: <laughs> 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 but it's, it's romantic in the book, the picture you paint.
1: Oh, of god, you guys yeah. in those
0: days, and even going to meet Lauren for the first time in the hotel room.
1: Well, you know, I had, um. I had 1,100 jokes that I had written for all those stand-up comedians in the Catskills. And I had written a bunch of jokes myself when I was on stage at Catch a Rising Star with the hopes that a manager, an agent, would um, like my writing and want to represent me as a writer. And um, I remember I was really nervous. I, I was going to have my meeting with Lauren, Dave Jonas, and there was an agent in William Morris at the time named Leon Memolee set me up with a, uh, a meeting with Lauren. And I went into the city with a uh, a notebook filled with 1,100 jokes in it. And I was really nervous. Volume. Yeah, <laughs> volume. Yeah. Yeah. The margins are thin, so it's a volume business. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I was in the schmata business. You know, I sold... I sold He's got to like one of these 1,100. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I... Um, I called Billy. Here's Billy again. I was in the lobby, and there were no pay. Uh, there were no cell phones. There was a payphone. And Lauren had spent time with Billy. They had gone to dinner, and they hung out, and they they spoke comedy. And I said, "Listen, I have a meeting with this guy, Lauren, in a, a, a little while. Um, anything you can do to, to give me a leg up on this meeting?" And I, I was desperate because. You know, I was making 7 learning $7 a joke for the, from those Catskill comedians. And to supplement this great living I was making, I took a job in a delicatessen on Hillside Avenue in Queens. Okay. You name it. I sliced it for about two years. So Billy says to me, he says, well, he's worked with Woody Allen and he's produced Monty Python specials. Oh, and he hates mimes. Lauren hates mimes. <laughs> so I said, okay, got it. I go upstairs at the appointed hour, and I sit on a bed. Lauren pulls up a chair, and I hand him this, um, this tome of 1,100 jokes. He opens it. He, he reads the first joke, and he goes, mm-hmm, very good, very good. And then he closes the binder, and he said, um, how much money do you need uh, to live on? I said, well, I'm making $2.75 an hour at the deli. (laughs) Match it. (laughs) So he said, tell me a little bit more about yourself, which I took to mean that before he committed to this kind of cash, he wanted to see what he was buying. (laughs) So I remembered my phone call with Billy and I said, "Uh, well, Woody Allen's my idol. Love Monty Python, but if there's one fucking mime on this show, I am out of here. <laughs> he gave me a job, so you know I'm paraphrasing obviously, and I'm, I, I've said it so many times. But that was the essence of the meeting. And about three, four days later, I got that phone call um, saying I got the job on this new show.
0: While you were and, writing a, a Robert Klein pilot with Richard Lewis, the phone call.
1: R- R- Richard, we it was uh, It was called Bo- Boiling Points, and he <laughs> played. A Jack Newfeld kind of investigative, muckraking uh, reporter for a uh, Village Voice kind of newspaper. That's Love absolutely right. Love it. We
2: will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by Bumble.
2: And you, when you were talking about the early days of Catch a Rising Star, you mentioned Roger Riddle. And I remember him. <laughs> Roger. You do? Yeah. Wow. Yes. Yes. I thought he was funny, Roger Riddle. <laughs> well, he, he, he
1: I, I think he has since passed, but he was a little guy and he, uh, his real name was something like Roger Rosenblatt or something. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> and he earned his money by and large as a clown at children's parties. So he, and he wanted to make the leap from that to, to becoming a comedian. And I remember, oh, this was so sad. I went to see him perform and he started his set. He wore a tuxedo, and he said that at the beginning of the evening, one of the guests at one of the tables came up to him, thought he was the waiter, and asked for ketchup. And he says, no, I'm the comedian. And, he, and the person then said, well, can you bring it to me in a funny bottle? Now, that was his opening joke, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I said to him, I, after, that was his, oh, he started with that, and then he he lamented doing that later on because he said, and I hope you're sitting down, Gilbert and Frank. He said to me later that, that such a, he should have ended with that joke. He should have led, built up to that joke. Because <laughs> how do you follow, how do you follow a joke like that, you know? And I'm going, wow. You know, it's not like he made it to, like, Sinatra starting, you know, the show with My Way. Okay? Wait a second. No. Roger. You, you actually remember
0: Roger Riddle, huh, Gil? Roger Riddle. Yes. That's my Roger Riddle. Story. Yes. Gil remembers all these comics, like, like, uh, like Roger Riddle. And who was Dummy in the Window again?
2: Oh, that was Larry Raglan. Larry
1: Raglin. Oh, I
2: remember Larry Raglan. Timmy sure.
1: Rogers. There was a comic who lived on Long Island, a couple of towns from my parents' name, Bob Melvin, do you ever hear him or hear of him? No. He well, you was talk about old, him in the book. Oh, he was an older guy, and <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I was like 22, and he was like 50. So right away, you knew that there was a disconnect. And he <laughs> he lived in the next town, and where there was a strip, you know, with all these stores on it, the main the main drag. And I would walk with him, and he would tell me uh, his. Some of his jokes, none of them made me laugh. He says, but what really put me on the map, this is him talking. He says, <laughs> his catchphrase was, you got a minute? Yes! That was Bob Nelson. Yes! You got a minute?
2: Oh, my God! And then he was doing these low-budget
1: commercials.
2: There you go. Where he'd start every commercial with, you got a
1: minute? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yes. And <laughs> Don't remember him. Yeah. He would speak, Frank. He would speak about himself and you got a minute as if it was part of American lore. Okay. <laughs> there's Mark Twain. Here's Huckleberry Finn and there's Bob Melvin's You got a minute. He says, you know, it's it's worked so good for me. I can go, I go into any store, and the proprietor looks up and goes, Hey, you got a minute. People the traffic sometimes at a red light. When I walk by, somebody sticks their head out, Hey, you got a minute. Trust me. I did. I I I walked with this guy a lot. I went into dozens of stores with him. Passed a lot of cars. Not one. Not one. (laughs) (laughs) Not one person asked if he had a minute.
2: And and you also mention, of course, uh, everyone's favorite Freddie Roman.
1: Freddie Roman is such a nice man. He's He's a good guy. Freddie, great guy. And what was interesting about Freddie? Always for me. I, I saw him do in, in industrial shows. I saw him in the Catskills. I saw him do fundraisers, corporate events. He can go into any room in the country and kill. He was that good of a comedian. And then 10 minutes after the show was over, they forgot his name. You know what I mean? they, they would, was that ilk of comedians that they were really good commercial comedians. And he was so good to me. He was so, such a nice man. Yeah,
0: I like seeing those names in the book. You know, Corbett Monica and and Johnny Hamer and Jackie Miles, Gilbert. You know these <laughs> names. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs>
1: and, and, and Gene Balos and Pat well, Henry. Well, Pat Henry opened for Sinatra. Sure, yeah. Famously. And I had written him jokes uh, for a Friars roast. Okay, but um, who did you just say before Pat Henry?
0: Uh, was well, Jackie Miles, Johnny Hamer, Gene
1: yeah. Balos, Gene Balos. This was a guy, Gilbert, were you familiar with Gene Bailover? Uh Yes,
2: yes. I, I used to see him
1: at the Friars. Yeah. Well, the first and, time and I and met him. And the waiters
2: him, all hated him. Well,
1: <laughs> he went around picking food off of everybody's plate. <laughs> he would come in with a bag and, and he would take it off the, the, the little serving table there. But here's the thing, and I think I have this in the book. <clears throat> Freddie Roman took me, or Morty Gunty took me there for the first time. And he's introducing me. I'm at the bar. And oh, here's a bright young writer. Da-da-da-da. And they were very nice because hopefully he would spread the word and maybe get me some more gigs. Took me into the main dining room. And at that first table, when you walked in, the first table on the right was the comics table, okay? That's where you saw Red Buttons and Alan King. And, you know, whoever was in town sat at that table. And he introduces me. To Gene Baylos, who had like those Beagle kind of droopy eyes and a real sad, <laughs> sad. Like it's like if somebody stuck a pin and deflated his face, okay? <laughs> and he introduces me to Gene Baylos, and he's uh, and he goes, Baylos looks at me and goes, I hear you're very funny. You know who's also very funny? My dentist. <laughs> and he takes <laughs> he spits, he takes out maybe 30 chiclets out of his mouth as if they were deceased. Okay, My dentist. And I swear that to this day, I don't know. Did, did he walk around all the time with 30 chiplets in his mouth, waiting to be introduced to some unsuspecting kid? Or did he see I was coming, turned his head, shoved in 30 yards? I just don't know. God as bless sit these here guys. Today.
0: Tom Leopold talk, would talk about uh, he and Paul Schaefer were at the Friars and they met. They ran into Gene and Tom said, "You know this." And Tom said, "I've told you this, Gil." Yeah. Tom said, "How you doing, Gene?" He said, "Not too good. I got a glass tube in my prick." <laughs> <laughs> <He's> got... <laughs> I never heard that. That's hilarious.
1: <laughs> i love is,
0: seeing those names in the book alan
1: and well, I, I remember told, i told you about Henry youngman right if I said oh that, yeah with the pigeon oh, yeah. yeah oh yeah. tell i one again it's that a great one great. well what it was is i had just joined the friars club and i was on my way there and it, uh, i turned off of um madison onto 55th street and and the friars club is between uh madison and uh park on 55th street And there was nobody on the street at this particular point. I don't know why. Maybe it was a Saturday. There was just nobody there. You looked around. I thought I was alone. Out of a door that was sort of in front of me steps Henny Youngman. He doesn't know I'm behind him because I'm back there. All right? And so he thinks he's alone. That's an important part of this story. He crosses the street to go into the Friars Club. He's about to step onto the curb when a pigeon flutters down, lands a couple of feet from him, and without hesitation, Henny looks at the pigeon and goes, any mail for me? And I'm (laughs) going, he didn't know I was there. He was talking to a bird. It's a classic. (laughs) It's a classic. This is the I, way these guys were wired. You know, you I mean? Get a laugh these, any, any way you can.
0: Some of these other names. And by the way, before we get off the subject of Freddie Roman, who wrote that wonderful Friars joke that Belzer did? The joke about, uh, you know, the one, Freddie Roman. La- Freddie Roman, ladies and gentlemen, Jack Ruby had a longer TV career. <laughs> was
1: that, was that your joke? Me? <laughs> I, no, it was not me. I had.
0: <laughs> that is gold. Tell us about these names. Billy Baxter. Uh, uh what well, m- Dick
1: Lord? Dick Lord was a comedian. Um, th- you know these comedians, they lived in New City, which is in Rockland County. And the reason mm-hmm. they chose to live there, it was somewhat equidistant between Manhattan and the the Catskill hotels. So it was a suburban town. They brought their families up there, and I would go there uh, on a Friday afternoon, and I'd write jokes with and for them. Have did dinner- with their families and um, then go up to the Concord or, you know, the at the, the whatever hotel, uh, Kutches, and see if my jokes worked, you know? And then um, uh, Dick Lord also lived not to He lived down the street from Freddie Roman. Morty Gunty lived there. Myron Cohn oh, lived there, oh, if names. remember him. There was a comedian named Vic Garnell who lived nearby in Saffron. Dick Lord was a very funny guy, and um, he grew up, his best friend was Bobby Darren. Wow. And uh, this was really sort of weird. His best friend was Bobby Darren, and they made a pact that whoever became famous first, the other one would open for him. So I think you know sort of the end of this story, because I don't believe in the annals of show business that Bobby Darin opened for <laughs> Dick Ward. <laughs> And, 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 uh, Dick had three, uh, three children and one of them, he named Darren, Darren Lord after, um.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you're reading the book and you, you point at, at one point, you say, this is analogous to the scene in Annie Hall. Where, where Woody is stuck or Alvy Singer is stuck writing jokes for these fly-by-night comics and is, hey, you fi- hey, kid, can you write me a French number? Played <laughs> by Johnny Hamer, yeah. who yeah. you Netflix actually
1: wrote
0: for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was, look wonderful from here.
1: Yeah, it was, um, it was spooky as all hell when I saw that in the movie, <laughs> and we've all seen that movie a million times. Sure. The guy, the manager at the desk who says to Johnny Hamer about young Woody, who's sitting in the chair? This, uh, uh, this kid writes some good jokes. Um, you know, maybe he can write for you or something like that. Okay, and Johnny Hamer gets up and he says to the kid, um, "Young Woody," <laughs> he says, "I hear you write good jokes, but I'm you know I'm not typical. I'm I'm good looking. You know, I I, I, I look very nice in the suit." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't have a big nose. I don't. I, 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 there's nothing distinctive about me. So it's a little tougher. Do you think you can do it? He says, you know, I like to come out and I sing, you know, Oh, Jean <laughs> All this French stuff. And when I saw that, I thought I was gonna. I, I, I went nuts because a few years earlier, not that many years earlier, I sat in Dave Jonas's office. Where he introduced me to Johnny Hamer. There you go. Who was and so I lived that scene, you know. So wow, what are the odds of that? Yeah. And
0: so when you watch I, Broadway, Danny Rose, it's like a documentary to you. To me, it's a documentary. You yeah. look
1: who you had at that table. You had Morty Gunty, Morty Corbett, Corbett Monica, Corbett Monica was there. Jackie Gale, who you Jackie, worked with. Jackie Gale, I worked with. I did a show called The Boys
0: for oh, yeah. Showtime oh, yeah. that yeah.
1: Jackie Gale was in. He was a very very funny man. And, and Howie
0: Storm was at that table, who we had, Gilbert, Yes. a couple of months ago. He's the last
1: surviving member of that scene. Yeah, because Jack Rollins died also. Yes, And I remember
2: at Catch in those days, Gabe Kaplan used to go on all the time. Right. And that, that whole, his whole um,
1: uh, welcome back, Carter was a bit. Sure. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's what gave way to the show. He, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh huh.
0: Who do you remember in those clubs too? This this comes up in the book, Gilbert. Of course, we know Ronnie Shakes, the Untouchables. Yes. You're mentioning all of these people: Ed Bluestone, Larry David, two, Richard Lewis was there, Belzer was there. What do you remember? What was what was your stand-up act actually like, Alan? Because I don't think you ever told me. And two, what do you remember seeing Gilbert for the first time?
1: I remember seeing Gilbert at the improvisation, and Gilbert. I don't know how old you were, but you had like three bar trays, those circular trays. Yeah. And you were doing impersonations with them? Still doing yes. it. Yes, still
0: doing it. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs>
1: so I see this kid going, Ironsides, okay. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds right. Gilbert was hilarious. Hilarious. Um, I, I remember um, you said Ronnie Shakes. Sure. Ronnie Shakes has since passed away. Funny I think guy. he died as a very young man. But isn't it weird that so many years later, and it's in the book, Ronnie Shakes had a joke that there's just some jokes that stick with you, right? And he had a joke that he said, you know, for 70 years, I've been going to the same shrink three times a week. I tell him all my problems. I share everything with him. All my fears all my neuroses. And today he said three words that brought tears to my eyes. No, hablo inglés. (laughs) That's (laughs) (laughs) A wonderful joke. How great is that joke?
0: Yeah, just great. I love reading those old jokes too in the book. And I love, you know, Arnie Cogan, who's obviously been on this show and is a mutual friend. I love that you, you meet Morty Gunty and he's going, Oh, they all wrote for me.
1: Morty Gunty, all all these guys wrote
0: for me, uh, Larry Gelbart, Neil Simon.
1: He he would take open a drawer, Morty Gunty would, and he would take out folders that had jokes, Larry Gelbart, Neil Simon, uh, Danny Simon, Simon, and uh, Arnie Kogan. And Arnie, when I was researching his book a little bit, and I was asking him for some Morty Gunty stories, he told me that... Years later, and Neil Simon did write for Morty Gunty, obviously on his way up. Okay, and um, uh, he said something. <laughs> it was at the opening of something like The Odd Couple, or you know, uh, Lost in Yonkers, one of those big hits. And he, Morty, was at the um, opening of it. And as they're leaving the theater, and it's the hubbub of a, a Broadway play opening night. that 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 that. Morty approached Neil Simon and says. You know, um, that shopping cart routine, is it, it, it's its not working. <laughs> <laughs> this is 30 years later. He's Neil Simon. He's got a theater name. <laughs> I love that all the great
0: comedy writers of the generation had to go through Morty Gunty. The, you know, something <laughs> that was had to a serve apprenticeship with Morty they, Gunty. It,
1: it was a rite of passage in a way. Yes.
0: Yeah. And I and, love
1: reading those jokes too the Let Your Last Supper joke. Well, I did That was for Dick Capri. Dick Capri is still alive. I believe he lives in Florida. Funny man, a sweet, sweet man. And um, I remember when they had Catskills on Broadway. And we were living in L.A. at the time. So me and Robin went. And there was Freddie Roman, uh, Dick Capri, Mal Z. Lawrence. And they always had a woman. Also funny. I think this was Marilyn Michaels was in it. uh, Somebody like that. And I'm sitting there. And this is oh, God, I want to say early 2000s, okay? Or maybe late 1990s, okay? Somewhere in there, and Capri is there, and he's doing a routine about his family tree that I had written in 1973. (laughs) He was talking about his family tree that he had his Italian uncle... Giovanni Montini Capri, <laughs> who was at the Last Supper. You know, you can't see him in the picture. He wasn't at the dais. He was at table six. <laughs> okay, he won now, the centerpiece, and was he did he, that joke.
2: Now, Mousy Lawrence was he the one that said, "You wanna hear a sad story?" <laughs> oh, that I, wasn't that wasn't that Eddie Lawrence, the old philosopher? <laughs> I I don't know, but I
0: remember he was also Interesting. doing a
2: commercial.
0: Interesting. That. Really funny guy,
1: Malsey Lawrence. Alan, were you heckled by a young Bill Murray as a stand-up? Uh, okay, so I went on stage at Catch a Rising Star <laughs> to advertise my material. And if people like the joke, they laugh. If they didn't, I I started like weeping. <laughs> I had no <laughs> sense to <of> perform. <laughs> you see this big Jew just starting to melt in front of you, and I. So you asked before what I spoke about, Frank. So I yeah, what was the about, act like? Well, the act was as if I. Uh, I you know, look, we were the next generation, uh, uh, like Alan King's children. Yeah. Okay. So it was talking about Long Island, middle class. What our parents you know what was suburban life but from our perspective and um oh the jokes were uh you know everything is artificial in long island um even uh the grass of my parents lawn has black roots okay no gray roots yeah gray roots well No matter what it was, it never got a laugh, okay? (laughs) It never got a ever, ever, ever. The the response it just got from you (laughs) was probably that much better than what got up there. You you know, it was like tumbleweed came down the aisle. And in one time I was on stage at Catch, and to set up all my terrific Long Island jokes, I said, uh, I, I live on Long Island, and a voice from the back said, so do I, could I have a ride home? <laughs> 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 I didn't know how to respond. So all I did was, oh, I I, I took the train. <laughs> I, I later found out that it was Bill Murray who was there. Unbelievable. And he was the one, but I didn't know and- him nor did I know it was him who did that at the time.
2: And you know what's interesting? All these names and some bigger ones like Alan King and Henny Youngman and Milton Berle, they started out as basically Jew comics. That's right. And there are Jew comics that I see nowadays that if they went in front of an audience that wasn't Jewish- they they would be uh, speaking in a totally... <laughs> and somehow, these guys were able to make the transition.
1: I'm telling you, the, the, you know, even like we said, Freddie Roman before could go into any room in the country and kill a good commercial comedian. Alan King obviously became very famous and very successful, <clears throat> but they knew how to read a room, mm-hmm. and they played it. Alan King... Do you remember that routine he had? Uh, Survived by widow. Oh, oh great, 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 My great! God, he would just take the newspaper and read the obituary, and he'd have an <laughs> audience member say, "What's it say? you survivor?" And it was hilarious. He'd sell
0: the shit out of that bit. He would
1: sell the shit out of it. But you want to know something? If you get a guy like Freddie Roman, and you he, look—he was a shoe salesman before <laughs> he decided that he was going to make the leap <laughs> onto the stage. And, you know, he used to tell jokes like uh, my wife is on a new diet. Uh, She wears little pieces of Limburger cheese hanging from her ears. Um, uh, And she never brushes her teeth. And from a distance, she looks thinner. And and he would get big laughs with it. And I would laugh. There was something, he was not of our generation, but there was something, they were uh, real craftsmen. When it, when it came to joke telling, and I admired that. Oh, it's a real You art. know, he would do jokes like um, the car me- t- mechanic telling his wife, I couldn't fix your brakes, so I made the horn louder. <laughs> I love that joke. <laughs> <laughs> you had great
0: affection for those people, Alan. I we really were talking, did. We were talking about the boys. Uh, Gilbert and I were talking about the boys. Uh, the great Alan Garfield just died last week. He was in yeah. the series. Tell, yeah. us about, tell us about it.
1: Bernie Brillstein called me up. I was doing a scary Shandling show. And um, so I was hot on Showtime. <laughs> okay, in the late 80s. And uh, he said, uh, you want to do a, a show called The Boys? I said, well, I don't know what that is. And he said, you know, about a bunch of old comics. And I said, you know, something? I belong to the Friars Club. I said, why don't I call it the boys, but I'll make it about a, a fictitious club, not unlike the Friars Club. And our hero cast could be the guys who play cards with each other up in a specific room every mm-hmm. week. So the cast was an all-star cast. It had Alan Garfield, who was a terrific he actor. It was great. Lionel Stander the best, was in it. Norman Fell, um... Norm Crosby played himself. Okay, okay, he couldn't make the stretch since he was having a different name. And Jackie these Gale was guys it. would fight amongst themselves. It was hilarious. I it, this was I'd come home. T- Robin and I would take the kids. Let's say to Disneyland. It'd be a Sunday night. We get home. It's a school night. I'd play back the messages, and I would hear just somebody clearing their throat for maybe 10, 15 minutes, <laughs> then hang up, and I go, oh, Lionel, stay on the call. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it was like running, a, 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 you know, a geriatric kindergarten. And But Alan Garfield was a very accomplished um, actor. He had already done, I think, was he in The Conversation? He was. Yes, yes, yes he yeah. And so I consider ourselves very lucky that we have very difficult, very difficult to work with, questioned everything. Um, no leaps of faith. So uh, he was in, in one way he was an anchor to this group, but on the other, he didn't have the facility that um, other people did. But he was a good actor. You have these hey, on,
0: on VHS or something, Alan? I've got to see these episodes. You know, know something? I would uh, if what, were not, there five if he, of them.
1: Oh no, we um, we did a. I want to. There's a, they might be eight or nine.
0: Wow. I got to see
1: them. Yeah. You, you, uh, it, it, you, you still have a, a Betamax player, right? Because I got him here. <laughs> I don't <laughs> have a Betamax. <laughs> you, told,
2: you told a joke that Gary Shanling
1: called you. Oh, and, yeah. when I first met him? Yeah. Gary Shanling was a genius. Gary Shanling was such a good writer. What had happened was I was at the Friars Club. <clears throat> And uh, this was after SNL, a couple of years, and I'm sitting there, and the phone rings, so they bring over a phone, Fry wife, they oh, <laughs> bring over the phone, and I answered it, and it was Bernie, he says, Do you know who Gary Shandling is? I said, yeah, uh, I think he's funny, I've seen him on Letterman, on some talk shows, he says, well, he... He's doing a special for Showtime that's headed right for the shithouse. If you don't get your ass on a plane, and get out of here. Okay. They sent me the script. I read it. I thought it would, was funny that I could help. I went out there. And I went straight from LAX to whatever restaurant to meet Gary. Now, Gary was waiting in the restaurant, and he was wearing sunglasses. This was at night in a restaurant. Never took them off. So when we were talking in general, just getting to know each other and specifically about the script, I couldn't get a read if the guy liked my ideas, liked me, couldn't see see his eyes. All right. We left each other and we said, OK, we'll keep in touch. And I I honestly didn't know if I'd ever hear from this guy again. I go, I check into whatever hotel, I go to sleep and now it's one o'clock in the morning, which is four o'clock for my body. Right. The phone rings. Hello, Alan, it's Gary. Hey, man, what's doing? Alan, my dog's penis tastes bitter. You think it's his diet or what? (laughs) And I'm going, I called Robin. I said, I think I found a writing partner. And um, at his memorial, we all told Gary jokes. He would call. He called at six o'clock on a Sunday morning. And back then there was no caller ID. So we'd be lying in bed, we'd be asleep. The phone was on Robin's side of the bed. The phone would ring. And at this point, if you're a Jew and if the phone rang at six o'clock in the morning, either somebody was dead or it was Gary. And Robin and I would have debates as to which was worse <laughs> news. Okay.
2: <laughs> you you said he had one joke where he was in bed with a girl. Yeah, here it comes. Oh, that's the great one. Yeah.
1: So he takes Robin takes the phone and she just hands it over to me. And I go, Hello. Alan's Gary, hey, man, this is 6 o'clock Sunday morning. (laughs) And he goes, Alan, I had a date last night. I go, yeah, how did it go? He goes, well, we were in bed, and the girl said, no fingers in the ass. And I said, look, it's my finger, and it's my ass. And if that's where I want to keep it, (laughs) you don't have a vote. (laughs) That's a
0: great joke.
1: Now to write a joke, if I live to be a thousand, I can't I write know, that joke. I it's so
0: goddamn brilliant.
1: Tell the I chimp remember, story too, Alan. Well, what the, was the, that? The, tell the chimp story since we're talking oh, about Gary. I was just getting to know Gary, and I had never seen him in a club before. Okay, uh, eventually I saw him in Las Vegas, and I, I have it in the book that I I had never been. And he, this is what kind of genius he was. He was doing a Toyota convention in Las Vegas. It was like 2,100 Toyota salesmen worldwide, okay? And I'm in the back, and Gary comes onto stage, and he looks out at it, these 2,100 Toyota people, and he says, you know, if one thing I love to do after I jerk off is talk <laughs> at a Toyota convention. <laughs> that was his opening joke. What you're talking about, yeah. Frank, is... Uh, Gilbert I'm sure you've performed there The Comedy and Magic Club down in Amosa Beach Oh yeah in L.A. Bill, Gary used to work out there all the time Okay And uh, we're driving down there from LA And he says to me Look I'm going to get to a point in my act Where And I'm going to just brush my ear Just going to hit my ear That's your signal Okay Shout out tell us about your chimp. <laughs> I said, what? He said, and no matter how I resist, you keep on insisting <laughs> that I tell you about my chimp. All ah, right, fine. So I go, I'm sitting in the back, Gary's on stage, he's talking about his problems with girls and his, with his mom and dating and all of that and how he spends most of his time alone. And then he hits his ear. And I yell out, "Tell us about your chimp!" And he looks at me, and goes, "No, no, 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 no. That's uh, it's too personal. Uh, I I can't tell that story." And he starts again. And I go, "Tell us about the chimp!" And he says, "Sir, I I I I appreciate that you like the chimp, but I can't. tell there's women here and and whatever. I insist." And now the audience. Catches on, and the whole audience is going. Tell us about the chimp. Tell us about the chimp. It became like a whole thing. Okay, so finally Gary goes. All right, fine. He says, I have a pet chimp, and the other night, you know, he, he just just imitates everything I do. And the other night, I brought a girl home for the first time. I took her into the bedroom, and the chimp took one look at me, jumped up onto the dresser dipped his hands, his fingers, in a jar of Vaseline, slapped it on his ass, and bent over. (laughs) And and Gary said, he said to the girl, I I swear he's never done this before. Bad chimp, naughty, naughty. I swear he's never done this before. I had never seen anybody manipulate an audience that way. Yeah, I did. Maybe Andy Kaufman, when I used to see him at Catch or, or, or at The Improv at the really early days, he would make the audience hate him and then love him. And it was, it, it, it was, but Gary with his chimp story, um, he Gary always spoke about his ass and he, like he would make those phone calls just like Rodney did. Robin and I went uh, on our honeymoon. Uh, we came home, this is after SNL. No, no, we're still doing SNL. Uh, we were married in 1979. So we came home and it's two o'clock in the morning so we're dead to the world. We don't even unpack our, you know, our suitcases. Plop into bed. At 2 o'clock, the phone rings. I pick it up. Alan, it's Rodney. <laughs> I go, hey, man, Rodney, what's doing? Alan, when we were growing up, we were real poor. I go, how poor were you? He says, We well, you so poor that come Christmas, we couldn't afford tinsel for the tree. We used to wait for my grandfather to sneeze. <laughs> Now, it's two in the morning. I'm with with Robin, and I'm laughing. A, it's a funny joke, and B, this poor woman is going to spend the rest of her life, as long as we're married, getting phone calls like this in the middle of the night. Rodney says, what do you think, funny? I went, yeah, it's real funny. He goes, yeah, that's what I thought. He hung up. I didn't hear from him for two years. Was it surreal when
0: Rodney came to host
1: SNL, considering Uh, that you'd you'd had history with him? Yeah, I had history with him. And um, I was—I uh, remember writing a lot for the show that week. And you'd think about it, the worst host we ever had was Milton Berle, and Rodney, uh, probably around the same age, maybe a little bit younger, but of that school, you know, joke telling mm-hmm. and whatever. But there was something so hip about Rodney. You know, he was friends with Lenny Bruce. Okay, and uh, Joe Ansis was legendary. Great Joe Ansis. used to hang out at uh, Hanson's, you know, the drugstore there. And, boy, I would have loved to have been the fly on that wall. You know, George Carl, they were all there. Rodney was of that ilk. And so when he came to host, um, I was, like, proud. Hey, everybody, my dad's coming. Uh, you- you're going to love him. It was great.
0: Who were the uh, – aside from Uncle Milty? who were the hosts that – Disappointed you the most personally. Well, those, to say disappointed, that early... means you had
1: an expectation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think we talked about Louise Lasser last time. Louise
1: Lasser, I, you know, she was, you know, she was a huge star. Okay. Um, uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, sure, her, right? Yeah. And she came, and um, boy, she was incredibly unfunny, and um, she, uh, there was no flexibility there. You know, certain people, their method is to memorize something or, or just to, you know, and you had the greatest improv actors in the world, you know, with Gilder and Belushi and Phil Murray and Danny and, and Lorraine. So it was a different school altogether.
2: And, and they had an idea, because at one point they thought she was going to walk out or wouldn't do the show. And what was the idea of how they were going to fill her sketches?
1: Oh, you you're talking about Louise Lassagot? Oh, I don't yeah. remember that. They were do all going to wear know? the wigs, right, Gil? Yeah. They, yeah. Oh, is think... that what it was? All <laughs> the cast
0: members were going to put on the Mary Hartman
1: wig. <laughs> wow. This is how I have to find out.
0: <laughs> like when, when Buck got cut by the samurai sword and everybody put a Band-Aid everybody on.
1: Everybody put a Band-Aid on, and at the end of the show, every, for the good nights, everybody had a Band-Aid, the same exact do You, right? you know, uh,
0: Alan, you talk about in the book how you, you decided to leave in 79, and it's sad in a way because had you stayed one more season— you guys would have been on together. Who's that? You and Gil. Oh, yeah, me
1: and Gil. I, I thought you were talking about Milton. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the,
1: the, the other well-endowed comedian. Yeah. yeah, boy, I would have been surrounded by, um, wow, uh, whatchamacallit. Uh, I left the 79-80 season, so I left at the end of yeah. in the spring of 80. Gilbert, you came on in the next fall, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, were, we, were, we, we crossed in the night, absolutely. It could have been fun. Yeah.
0: Why, why is- do you think Gilbert's season didn't work, Alan? I know that's a loaded I, I think, question.
1: I, I think that, you know, something, as I remember, look, there was a couple of things going on there. First of all, look what they were up against, the legend of, of course, the people who came before them. Okay, so, you know, and, and wasn't Eddie Murphy there? Oh, yes. You, know, you, you had people, you had Gilbert, you had Eddie Murphy, you had people, but I think it was up against the, the comparison to what was. I also think that you didn't have at the helm, uh, with all due respect to Gene Domanian, Lorne was a genius. Lorne created this show. Lorne was very, very funny. Lorne had taste. Lorne, Lorne uh, was a comedy technician to a great extent. That wasn't in Gene's wheelhouse, you know? So even if you had a staff of writers and you had very capable um, actors, uh, you didn't have anybody at the helm who could put it all together the way Lauren did.
2: And also, I always thought it was like if when Friends was the top show on the air, if you changed the entire cast.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sure. The only time that ever worked is when the first Darren died and Bewitched. <laughs> uh, yes! Yes! You that know, was
2: so weird.
0: Everyone just, accepted it. He looked Nothing it just, like the other guy. Everybody really accepted a, a new Marilyn Munster, too. Yes! <laughs> yeah, in, those, in those days. You know, it's sweet, Alan, too, the way you write about SNL in the book. It's in the early part of the book. Uh, you talking about going to SNL
1: 40. Gilbert was there, too sure uh, we sat near each other i think right behind gilbert yeah
0: but it's sweet the way you talk about how well first of all your 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 heart goes you're, you're thinking about the people who weren't there you were well, thinking about goes. gilda and john and dave wilson
1: yeah you know you look around and you, you're back to where you were then so i looked at it through those eyes tom davis the place was populated by now you know uh, people who were deceased so the, like the director dave wilson um and Michael O'Donoghue and Gilda and John yeah. and Herb, of course. Oh, Herb Sargent, who was yeah. my mentor. You know, he was the. Uh, now Herb was still there when you did the show, right, Gilbert?
2: Uh, I don't Do remember. You remember Herb Sargent, Gilbert. Uh, yeah, he may have been
1: older man, yeah. very full of yeah. whitish hair. He was a he was a much
0: much less so Alan, but a mentor to me as well in later Real, years.
1: He's the greatest. What a lovely
0: just a lovely man. Gave me some great gigs.
1: Yeah, he was, uh, um, yeah, a legendary man, and uh, he had produced. uh, Remember, that was the week that was. Oh yes, of course, he produced that. He wrote for presidents. He wrote for presidents. Did everything. I'd walk in to know Herb Sargent was to be two degrees of separation from the world. I would go into his office, Ben Bradley would be there, and Gloria Steinem was like the love of his life. And uh Art Buckwald, uh, Mort Saul. I met Petty Chayevsky in his office. He knew he everybody. Knew everybody. Do you and know- he ne- he he was the quietest man in the world. Okay. He hardly ever opened his mouth. He'd just stand in the corner and observe. He wore his glasses up here, his um his reading glasses. And Larry Gelbart once said, If Herb Sargent could talk, can you imagine the stories he'd <laughs> That's tell? That's a good line.
2: <laughs> there, there, how some stuff sticks in my head. I remember the opening theme, just to the lyrics in the opening theme of That Was the Week That Was. And it was, that was the week. That was it's over. Let it go.
1: Yeah, that's right. Remember the one who sang it was Nancy Ames. That's right. Was the singer right? Very good. Yeah. And oh! Bob Di- Buck Henry was on that show as Buck Bob Dishy. and David Frost it wasn't. It was like he, he didn't he commute back and forth to England where he hosted. A sounds film?
0: right. Tell us about tell us something about Buck because you Buck passed since you were last here, and obviously you were instrumental in getting him on this show, which we're grateful for.
1: I um he had a great time on your show. Oh, we were
0: so happy oh, to have him. and I know
1: you were happy with him and his uh, his widow uh, Irene uh, has since told me stories about how much it meant to him. that's uh, great you guys. Uh, Buck Henry, when he first came and he did the show, I was in awe. I used to hang out downstairs in thirty Rock when I used to run errands for my father who manufactured jewelry in, in his his place was a 52nd between 5th and Madison. So it was like three blocks from 30 Rock. So when I'd run errands for him, I'd make sure every errand, either coming or going, I went by the lobby in 30 Rock and I'd hang out by the studio elevators because Johnny Carson had the Tonight Show upstairs. And that was the week that Was was there. And I'd, there were people in that building doing what I wanted to do someday. And Buck Henry... I just had a natural affinity to him. He made me laugh on that show. Then I remember when The Graduate came out and he was the desk clerk. And sure. uh, if you remember oh, him, yeah. he's really funny, just looking at Dustin Hoffman, who said, I forgot my toothbrush, you know? And uh, then I remember him going on The Tonight Show and just talking to um, Johnny Carson for eight minutes about nothing. And it was really hilarious. And when he came on the show, I remember being nervous. I was nervous because um, it was Buck Henry, and uh, I knew I'd be working with him because I wrote Samurai Delicatessen. I drew from my days at the deli. (laughs) (laughs) Write what you know. Write what you know. know, Of course, the deli I worked in had a samurai guy behind the counter who would slice um, tomatoes (laughs) with a sword. I wrote it and hung out with him. And as I got to know him... Not He loved words. He was the most well-read person, saw every movie in the world, and um, he was a sweet guy who, yet, when he would come to town, and this was before uh, Giuliani cleaned up Times Square. I'm married to Robin at this point. When Buck would come to town, and I'd go out with Buck alone, Robin would find it necessary to hose me down before she let me back in the apartment because <laughs> we went to all of these places with peep shows and this and a guy with a mop. No, yeah, we we heard some stories about Buck. <laughs> well, there was a place he took me to called the Unicorn Follies. Okay? <laughs> I like it already. Okay, so we're the only two men in there who are sitting with each other. It's all single guys and three three seats over is that guy. But Buck and I are sitting next to each other, and performing was a uh, performing. <laughs> yeah, you tell me if this is a performance. Was a woman named Monica Kennedy, and what was her big trick? Monica Kennedy would hike up her skirt. Hold down her panties, drink water, and through a certain aperture, and I think you know which one I'm talking about, she would <laughs> shoot water and, and put out the candle. <laughs> <was her panties. laughs> Gilbert, well, she opened for a... you didn't she yeah what, what's that? <laughs> she opened for gilbert she opened for gilbert. at yeah, rascals yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so i at <had laughs> rascals I, so i'm watching this and i'm go wow she put out the candle this is amazing and then okay the show is over the curtain closes we're getting ready to leave the curtain parts and Monica Kennedy sticks her head out and goes, Buck, you want to bring your friend backstage? Okay, he knew her. He would know who these people were. They'd address the patron him by of name. the arts, Alan. I understand. Gilbert
0: <laughs> made him did. happy by singing the Captain Nice theme for Buck. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. The Captain Nice theme. It made him it, happy. Yeah, Look, remember he did the thing. It's the man who flies around. Also. Yeah. Go ahead, Look, Gil. It's
2: the man who flies around like an eagle. Who, no, look, it's the man who flies around. Wait, wait a minute. Oh, look, it's the man who flies around in pajamas. It's, oh, fuck, fuck. Hands
0: hands like hammers, runs with pajamas. Wasn't that it? Wasn't that it? Something, something.
2: Oh, oh, look, it's the man who flies around like an eagle. Look, it's the man who hates all that's That's illegal. illegal. Who is this man with arms built just like hammers? It's just some nut who flies around in pajamas. (laughs) That's no nuts, son. That's That's Captain Captain Nice.
0: We made him happy. (laughs) We knew so much about him. Quick couple of questions from listeners, uh, Alan. Uh, uh, Harold Steenworth says, Did you ever see Dan Aykroyd's infamous web toes?
1: Yes, I did. Uh, they were <laughs> legendary. And what it was one of those things I thought maybe they were, it was like urban legend. And then I wrote Dragnet with uh, Dan. So it was only after I left SNL, uh, it was must have been about 10ish years later, we wrote a, a couple of drafts of the movie Dragnet together. And we did it up in um, Martha's Vineyard. So I lived with him and Dan was really into the characters. It was like I was living with Joe Friday and uh, (laughs) we would go into the hot tub uh, and and come out and and I saw his uh, web toes then. Yes, he does indeed have them.
0: Michael Alvarez, uh, did Uncle Miltie's boy look more like an unsliced pepperoni or a tongue in a deli?
1: Geez. The boy, I think you're talking about Mr. Wiggles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I, I, I was, still Wiggles, <clears throat> I I don't know Anaconda. That's where I went with it right away. Oh, I didn't
2: <laughs> how did you see Farrah
1: Fawcett? How, Farrah oh yeah, Farrah Fawcett, Fawcett flashed you. It's in the book. I did a I did a series, a very ill-fated series called Good Good Sports for um, CBS. This was after the Shanling Show. Bernie called me up and um, said, um, you know, CBS wants a uh, a romantic comedy. For uh, Farrah Fawcett and Ryan O'Neal, and I said, w- w- no. <laughs> I said no. I I said, yeah, uh, are they funny? No. Are they romantic? No. She, they're always in. You know, they, they they were always like in the Globe or the National Enquirer. You know, uh, fighting. And, and I said, he says, well, you know, make believe you're writing it for uh, Tracy and Hepburn. I said, well, well it's different because Tracy and Hepburn were funny <laughs> they got along. <laughs> they liked each other. They liked each other. So, okay, those are two important ingredients in romantic and comedy, okay? I For the only time in my whole career, even things that never worked, you know, that that, that failed, there was a nobility about why I did it. Uh, this was the only time that I could remember that I ever did anything that went against the grain. This was, I did it because Uh, You know, I was hot off The Shanling Show. And if this was a big hit, you know, maybe I could become Rob Reiner or Jim Brooks. That's the way it was presented to me. And so we had a, a supporting cast that had about four or five Tony Awards. We had a writer's room that had at least a dozen Emmys in it. But it was one of those situations that the only reason the show existed was because of the two of them. And the only reason that the show failed was because of the two of them. When they would get a get in a fight, they they lived together, and they would bring it to the studio. And there was one particular morning, where I was talking to Farah in the uh, in the studio, and um, she had had a, an argument with um, with Ryan, who I didn't know was approaching behind me, and she made sure that he was at a certain point where he would see her pick up her shirt and flash me just to piss him off. Okay. And um, by the way, I, I, that's not a lament on my part at all. It, it's, uh, it's, it's not a cry for help. <laughs> it, it was like the greatest day of my life, but you know, but yeah. So I saw I, uncle Miltie's uh, penis and I saw Farrah Fawcett's press. And you also got <laughs> to work with, I'm looking up the
0: credits of, of good sports. By the way, there's great stuff about good sports in the book. Uh, I found out things about you I didn't know that you had turned down running The Cosby Show.
1: I turned down running The Cosby Show and I turned down running uh, Roseanne. I thought I knew you. Yeah, so when I was presented with this, Gee, on the off chance that this becomes, like traffic pulls over to watch Farrah and Ryan on Tuesday nights, I didn't want to miss the party for the third time. So <laughs> that, that went into my decision.
0: Yeah, I believe they call those kind of performers writer killers. There you go. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, and he called us career killers. It did was he a take, beautiful relationship. Did he
0: take a swing at somebody on the
1: crew, too? Yeah, I, I'll tell you, not only did he take a swing at somebody on the crew, that's the Christ. one credit – that people on that crew and who were on that show left off of their resume. Okay, that show was on in 1992, I want to say, and it wasn't until around oh, 2008, 2009 that I was back on solid food. <laughs>
2: <Okay>. <laughs> we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor.
0: Tell us, tell us, uh, just before we get out of here, because we're talking about Buck. My, my, maybe my favorite sketch in the first five years is "Lord and Lady Douchebag," which well, you, that which, was a, you and yeah. Franken and Davis.
1: What had happened was I was in California the summer of 1976. It was the bicentennial summer? Lorne was producing a Beach Boy special for NBC. I was one of the writers on it, as were Belushi and Aykroyd who were in it, and it was great fun. We hung out with the Beach Boys, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Al Franken and Tom Davis were also out there that summer, and they had a home that they rented in Laurel Canyon. And I remember going over there one night, and we were just talking, and it was coming back. We had to come back and do a couple of shows in late August, Mm -hmm. okay? And I think one of them was hosted by Louise Lasser as a matter of fact, I I think. And then there was another one before we actually started the new season in September. So we were pitching ideas and I suggested a party where anybody who had anything named after them was there. So like the Earl of Sandwich, you know, (laughs) and Lord Chesterfield, anybody who had something named after them. And we came up with, well, what if Lord and Lady Douchebag are at the party brilliant well we were thrilled with it and we went back and we went back to new york and the censor said not on your life <laughs> there's not a chance in hell and every year we would pitch the lord and lady douchebag sketch and every year look the first guy that we had is a censor his name was jay otley really sweet guy very funny and he worked with us okay he would say look uh, you know, I my boss won't let me do this. Maybe you could do it that way, do it this way. But he was adamant against Lord and Lady Douchebag. Then came a in named uh, Jane Crowley, who was, I don't know, Margaret Dumont. Okay, <laughs> <I'll take his laughs> <big name. laughs> dress shield, you know. Oh, Professor, you know, like that. She couldn't know a joke if it bit her in the ass, but she saw Douchebag and she ran for the hills. Finally. There was a guy named um, Bill Cloutworthy, and this was going to be our last show. It was the last show of the fifth season, and uh, we pitched it, and he let us do the Lord and Lady Douchebag sketch. It's so great. um, They were all there, and the buck played the Lord Douchebag.
2: Douchebag! Well, I haven't seen you in the House of Lords in ages. Don't tell me, for the first time in memory, we're gonna have a parliament without a douchebag.
1: <laughs> My dear sandwich, parliament has always had its share of douchebags and always will. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Spoken like a true douchebag. I have often heard the King say of your family, and yours as well, give me a sandwich and a douchebag, and there is nothing I cannot do. <laughs>
2: hey,
0: tell me, douchebag, when are you going to show us that invention of yours?
2: Yes, Douchebag. Just what kind of an invention are you sitting on?
1: It's a a long story. Why don't we go out into the garden
2: and I'll explain it to you. Tell me, did Lady Douchebag help you in the project? Help? Why, she was the inspiration.
1: It's so wonderful.
2: That's so funny. Clotworthy was the censor on my season.
1: Isn't that something? Oh, did nice you run a enough? foul of him, Gilbert? <laughs> <laughs> <Did> you run a <laughs>
0: foul. Of did you have issues with him, Gilbert?
2: And and I think uh, right around the point where we lost you, um, Frank was asking about that the
1: uncle. Oh, wait, I
0: was asking you about
1: Uncle Roy. Yes. Uncle Roy, you know something? I can't even imagine anybody trying to do that today. No, sir. Or, or, or even thinking about it. It was, and that's the sort of—I wouldn't say saving grace because that's not right either. But it was written by Rosie Schuster and Ann Beets. Uh-huh. So there were two women writers who wrote Uncle Roy, who was who used to babysit. <laughs> <laughs> His young nieces, Gilda and Lorraine, <laughs> who had pigtails, and they were playing like eight, nine-year-old kids, and he would take pictures of them as they slid down the banister, and their legs were apart, so their panties went. It was you can't even think along those lines these days. But Buck, I think they did it a couple of times. I
0: look at those sketches, like ex-police, the one about per- police brutality, and that yeah. one, and the things that you guys
1: got away with when you were riding high on that wave of success. Well, it was you know. Danny had a lot to do with it. Danny Acuay would come up with characters. Think about it. He had a character called Irwin Mainway. Oh, the best! It was a real sleazy kind of guy. Bag of, of glass. Guy. Bag, yeah. And he would try to <laughs> would try to sell so great his products. You know, uh, you know, bag of glass. So this is fine for fine for a kid. You know, little chips of broken glass. In it. Johnny Human Torch. The book Alan is
0: laugh lines. My life helping funny people be funnier. Forward by Billy Crystal, and you got a book that you did with Dave Barry, your pal Dave Barry and Adam Mansbach.
1: Yeah, a that was field, a field guide, guide to the Jewish, to the Jewish people. people. Yeah,
0: I'm
2: Gilbert Gottfried. And this is <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried. This has, I'm Gilbert Gottfried, and this. Shut the fuck up, both of you. <laughs> hey, it Gilbert Gottfried. It has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with Frank Padre as my co-host. And we've had a... And we've been talking... To the man who saw Milton Berle's cock, <laughs> <laughs> and most importantly, brought the film North. Okay.
1: <laughs> I, was I was hoping you big, would have forgotten
2: <laughs> to the big screen.
0: We urge Alan, our listeners, <laughs> Alan We urge our listeners to watch North. <laughs> i would be very curious we have a lot of listeners alan i'd be very curious to see what they think of north
1: yeah, you should take some sort of poll and see yeah other, what in, in a stuff. new
0: context all of these years later yeah, the, the book yeah. is wonderful full of great stories touching stories uh uh your uh, stories about your your complex relationships with gilda and gary shandling uh it's it's a it's a practically a comedy writer's manual loved it Thank and, you so and much. Tiffany right? Haddish movie. When are we with Billy? When are we going to see that? Well,
1: now we don't know because it was going to be the fall, but now because of you know nobody's allowed to be together. So thank God it's in the can. And when it's re- you know when people are ready to go to the movies again, I guess there will be a release date.
0: Okay, okay. And forty-five years since SNL, since you walked in that room and saw Gilda that behind something? that plant. Uh, you bet. Almost a half century. Wow. Am uh, I old? Wow.
2: So Alan Schweibel.
0: <laughs> well, Gil. How'd you like our first Zoom episode?
1: Woo! Excellent. Okay, thank you. Gary, yeah, great you job. Excellent. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, oh, Dara. Hey, God, thanks, guys. Thanks This was great fun. Thank you. This is the theme to Gary show. The theme to Gary show. Gary called me up
2: and asked if I would write his theme song. I'm almost halfway finished. How do you like
1: it so far? How do you like the theme to Gary show? This is the theme to Gary's show. That you hear as you watch the credits We're almost to the part of where I start to whistle Then we'll watch its Gary Shandling show This was the theme to Gary Shandling show